Well, good morning, Fellowship Church friends and guests. The Lord be with you. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend of food and family and football. Today we gather again for worship, and uh, we're going back to the early 2000s, where we successfully survived Y2K, where the worship songs in that particular era, as you'll soon hear, are centered on the cross and on our salvation, and where the great mystery of the day is what is Pastor Tierra going to wear to preach. (laughs) If this is your first Sunday here with us, I'm sorry. We are strange, but not typically this strange, where we're wearing strange outfits and progressing through historical decades. But we have been in a series, particularly in the month of November, uh, called This Is Us. And we are going through the decades, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. We sing some of the retro songs from those eras together, and we remember together some of the artifacts of our life together here at Fellowship Church. You'll soon see some images up on the screen from the early 2000s, and we'll, we'll celebrate uh, one of Fellowship's long-held but freshly named values, and we've been naming four of them that we are real, that we are unifying, that we are inviting, and today we celebrate that we are equipping. In fact, the mantra of the day today is that you and I, all of us together, you are loved just the way you are and loved too much to be left that way. Fittingly, today is also Christ the King Sunday and a day in which we acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of creation and our own lives too, which means that whatever decade we're in, whatever circumstances we're going through, whatever the future holds, we remember that our identity is grounded in the person and work of King Jesus. Our call to worship this morning uh, is fitting for equippers like us, and it comes to us from Psalm 78, where the psalm says that we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. We will tell of his power. We will tell of the wonders that he has done. He has established a decree in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that the next generation would know, even the children yet unborn, and that they too in turn would tell their children as well. Then they will put their trust in God and forget not his deeds, but keep his commands. Friends, as we engage in the next uh, set of songs and images on, this, on the screen, I invite you to do so worshipfully and also with an active spiritual memory of God always among us and especially God from generation to generation. Let's stand and sing together. Children sing in glory. 
chase the stars in the sky and you know them by name. This morning's long shadow prayer comes from one of the more famous saints, you might say, the great missionary to Ireland, St. Patrick. Interestingly, I found out this morning that St. Patrick went to Ireland from the, for the first time from England, not as a missionary, but as a child. He was captured and taken to England to uh, serve the people there and work, and he found himself being a sh- animal herder, you might even call a shepherd. 
which I think is really interesting because I don't think it's a coincidence then that when he later went back to Ireland, the thing, the tool that he used to share the faith was a shamrock, we would call it, but it's actually a clover, a three-leaf clover that he would use as a tool to share about God's love in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He used a tool from the very thing that he was good at, and you'll hear a little bit more about that in Pastor Tierra's sermon this morning. But this morning, we are going to honor St. Patrick and most importantly, connect with God through prayer by a prayer that he wrote, and we're gonna join our hearts responsively. I'll read the words in the white, and you can join in the words in the yellow. Let's pray together. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. The power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to say, his ear to hearken to my need. The wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward. The word of God to be give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me. Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Amen.
things in all places and at all times. And so I say to you, the peace of Christ be with you. Would you please stand if you are able and share that peace with one another. Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. My name is Nate, and I'm one of the pastors here where our mission as the church is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you're new or if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you find this to be a place of belonging, growing, and serving. And if you'd like to let yourself be known to us, we have these connection cards that you can find at the Welcome Center uh, after the service or online uh, through the link. You might be thinking right now, why, Pastor Nate, you know, you're usually kind of willing to dress up, and why aren't you dressed up this morning for the 2000s? And to that, I would say, not so fast, my friends, because in 2004, upon graduating from a school that was in the state down south, I came up to Michigan, and in mid-2000s-ish, 2005-2006-ish, I was doing the sidewalk sales at uh, downtown Holland, and Jose Bank happened to have a dress shirt 
that was yellow and blue. And you know, I was really an obsessed fan back then. And I, I was like, I can't pass this up. I gotta buy this yellow and blue shirt. And only, I mean, I, I, that was back then, but clearly now, I mean, only an obsessed fan would still wear a shirt from 20 years ago. Only an obsessed fan would happen to wear that same shirt the day after a big game. Only an obsessed fan would let his obsession leak into his vocation and start talking about it in front of hundreds of people. Only an obsessed fan would be thinking it's great to be a Michigan Wolverine. It's great to be a Michigan Wolverine. Come on. Sorry, I for, forgive me for taking my obsession all over. I, I leak on occasion. I have a couple announcements for you this morning that uh, have to do with much more important things and much gooder, better things. Uh, And I want to share them in two categories. One is some things that are upcoming and one thing that is, this is your last opportunity. First, upcoming. Uh, Next week, uh, we are going to be starting on Wednesdays, actually, a Strength Finders class on Clifton Strength Finders. And if you're uh, curious about how you might uh, learn more about the gifts you have and that God has wired and the ways in which God has wired you and how you might share those, we'd encourage you to come to that class. Also, next week is Table to Table, uh, which is our monthly thing where we move from the communion table to the lunch slash brunch table next week. We will be having brunch between the services uh, from 9, what is it, uh, 10 to 10.30-ish. Uh, you can come a little early next week and get breakfast on us uh, right out there in the atrium slash uh, uh, concourse area next week for table to table. And then also uh, on December 2nd, we'll uh, be equipped to celebrate and get, look forward to Christmas with our Advent uh, Christmas party on December 2nd. That'll be a family-friendly event. And then I have a couple things that this is your last chance, the last opportunity, today only type things. Uh, One is that we are still receiving for the last time our value scorecard uh, survey. We'd encourage you to find one of those at the Welcome Center and fill that out because today is our last Sunday for that. Also, the last Sunday uh, by November 30th, if you are curious or interested in coming to Nicaragua and checking out our mission partners there, this is the last Sunday, the last week uh, to sign up for the Nicaragua trip. That'll be... uh, closed on November 30th. And also, this is the last Sunday uh, for our uh, annual monthly No Scrooge November campaign, an opportunity to support some local mission partners uh, and some ministries that we're doing right here at Fellowship Church. Uh, And so there are still about a couple dozen uh, Hope Christmas Store gifts that you can take off the tree right after the service. You can also uh, bring some food for hand-to-hand as we serve over uh, 100, uh, 200 families this year every week. Uh, West Ottawa's pantry, and then Bethany Christian Services, the gift cards for foster families. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at that and see how you might participate if you haven't already, and thank you to those uh, that have already participated. Great ways for us to share what we say belongs to God uh, already, uh, giving back to God what we say already belongs to God. And you can do that uh, in the giving of your tithes and offerings uh, at the bowls in the back of the sanctuary or uh, online uh, through our website. We'll continue in worship now through song. Could you stand with us and let's sing together as we prepare our hearts to hear what God is speaking to us. And also at this time, our kids three years through first grade are dismissed to children and worship. You can go during this song.
pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so eternally grateful for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters um, to sing your praises, to, um, to pray to you, to extend your peace to one another, and to study your scriptures. And so as we turn toward those scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, that you would open our hands that we might serve, and that you would open our hearts that we might love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, Fellowship. Uh, my name is Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, if I've not yet met you. Uh, and this morning is the last week in a series that we've been calling uh, This Is Us. Over the last few weeks, we've been um, uh, looking at the long shadow cast by Fellowship Reformed Church, um, and in doing so, examining um, our values, real, unifying, inviting, and this morning, this morning, equipping and we're going to look at this value through the lens of a rather familiar story. 
so we've been looking at our values. Uh, we've been trudging through uh, or delighting ourselves through the decades of music. Uh, we've been um, even exploring the fashion of the last several decades. Um, Reverend Skipper said last week that he was the oldest pastor with the worst decade. I think the youngest pastor uh, with the worst decade, actually. Uh, I don't remember much of the fashion of the 2000s. I just remember always being cold. So many layers, and yet always cold. <laughs> so this morning, uh, we are going to continue that trend. We're going to look at um, a familiar story, a story that even if you've never read the scriptures before, you know this story. Uh, it's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, it is one of the most popular stories in the scriptures. And you've heard the basic storyline before. A scrappy underdog um, meets a favored hero or a giant in battle. Uh, virtually every sports movie you've ever watched follows the David and Goliath storyline. Uh, remember the Titans uh, with Denzel Washington, the whole, yeah, remember the Titans follows this theme. Uh, Rocky, the Rocky franchise follows this storyline as well. Uh, and here's a twist on it. If you remember the 90s, you remember this movie, bring it on. Uh, it's a twist on the underdog theme where you actually follow the Goliath character throughout the entire movie. It's a really interesting story about the unmaking of of Goliath. Uh, sports references aside, the David and Goliath story is an incredible story. It's a great story. It's an epic story. But is it true? Like, is it for real? Or is it just a soothing bedtime story that we had read to us as kids or that we maybe read to our own kids and grandkids? The kind of story that sounds great until you face your first real giant in life. The story of David and Goliath resonates with something deep within the human experience, with, with the moments when the entire world seems to be stacked against you, the moments when giants are looming over us and we can't see past them, and the moments when, as a result, our own heart won't even rally because we're quaking in our boots. Giants are real, and they're as huge as Goliath. And what makes them real isn't just their size, but the fact that, like Goliath, they are bent on our destruction. The David and Goliath story resonates because we all know that giants are unavoidable and because we've all found ourselves facing off with the insurmountable. So what do you do when you find yourself facing off with giants? And more importantly, what does God do when we're facing off with them? The familiar story of David and Goliath has something to teach us about facing giants in our own time as faithful followers of Jesus. And so hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel 17, picking up in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Samuel and the men of Israel were gathered, sorry, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, who, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear, his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you, Israel, will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning's text places us on an actual battlefield, the Philistine army on one side, an army of Israel gathered on the other side. And you might be tempted to gloss over this little tiny detail, but who exactly are the Philistines and why are they an enemy of God's people? Now, we read about the Philistines in a couple of places uh, in the scriptures. First, in Judges. In Judges 13, it seems that the people of God have done evil in the sight of the Lord, such that they are given um, over into um, Philistine oppression or Philistine occupation for something like 40 years, it says, until the Lord raises up a deliverer by the name of Samson. In 1 Samuel 4, God's people go to war against the Philistines, and God's people decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant, that is the place where God's presence dwells among them, to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them as a sort of good luck charm. Well, it backfires because Yahweh is not a good luck charm. And so not only are they defeated in battle against the Philistines, but the Philistines seize the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it into the temple of their own pagan god, Dagon, who is literally and naturally a merman. Uh, we'll get into that in just a second. <laughs> uh, now, these two instances aside... The Philistines have sort of a murky, uh, murky origin story. They're not native to the region of Canaan, but scholars believe they came into the region around the 12th century BC from somewhere near the Mediterranean, uh, earning them the name of Sea People. Get it? Sea People, Merman. Uh, so they sweep through um, the region, leaving countless cities and ruins along the way um, Anatolia, Cyprus, uh, Syria. Uh, now, here's where it gets interesting. Notice where the Philistines are on the map. Um, they are to the south and the west of Israel. Uh, of Israel. Uh, on the other side of them, if you look closely, I think it's on the second map there, uh, on the other side of them is Egypt. Um, so Philistia is sandwiched between Egypt and Israel. Now, why does this matter? Because the Philistines want to be the next big empire in the ancient Near East. And so to do that, they need to expand their territory. Now, first, they decide they're going to go up against Egypt. This is why they've been sweeping through all these cities. First, they decide they're going to go up against Egypt. Naturally, Egypt is already an empire with a well-trained army. Egypt defeats them under King uh, Ramesses II. Uh, they're able to defeat them. And so the Philistines decide to just settle just outside of Egypt. They push back the Egyptians just far enough for them to be able to establish their own civilization, um, um, the five cities known as the Pentopolis, that's Ashdod, uh, Ashkelon, Ekron, uh, Gath, where Goliath is from, and Gaza. Uh, so the Pentopolis, or the five cities in the land of Canaan. Now, if you remember your story, who has the land of Canaan been promised to? The offspring of Abraham and Sarah. But more importantly, why has it been promised to um, the offspring of Abraham and Sarah? Uh, we read about this in Genesis chapter 12, because on it, God wants to recreate Eden, Yahweh chooses Abraham and Sarah because he wants to transform their offspring from a nothing people into a royal priesthood. 
the great nation through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. God's people, through their obedience to Yahweh and his word, would somehow show the nations how to worship God rather than idols. And in doing so, how to love God and delight in him. And in doing so, how to love others and their neighbors as themselves. And in doing so, how to live well and help other people live well. As people would be like a new Eden that would bring others into Eden through the love of Yahweh, one another, and neighbors too. But then comes the Philistines. They still want more territory. They want more power. They want more wealth. They want everyone in the ancient Near East to bow to Dagon, the merman god. And there's this little tiny nation of people in the way. You know, those people whose God used to serve our God in our temple. You know, those people that we've beaten before countless times. You know, those people, their God is in our territory. Of course, we crushed them before, we'll crush them again, they think. So once again, the Philistines and Israel go out to meet each other in battle. Only this time, a guy emerges from the ranks of the Philistine army. But he's not just a guy, he's a champion, the text says. And the literal interpretation is uh, the man of the in-between. Uh, now, what exactly is a man of the in-between? Uh, he's, um, he's a single fighter who fights on behalf um, of the Philistine army. Apparently, this was a, sort of a, a practice um, uh, um, uh, for some nations where you would send one person on behalf of the army to kind of limit casualties, and the idea being that whoever, uh, whoever's God was strongest the person representing them would win in battle. Um, so Goliath comes out on behalf of Philistia, and he says, if we prevail, if we prevail, that means our God is bigger. That means that you and your God will serve us, and this vice versa uh, for the other side. Now, Goliath has some serious physical advantages as a fighter because the guy is huge. He's six cubits and a span tall. Uh, or nine feet tall, if you translate that to American uh, measure, uh, measuring units, <laughs> according to the Hebrew. And the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, says that he's six foot nine. Uh, either way, nine feet tall, six foot nine, he can definitely reach the cabinet above the refrigerator. Um, so, <laughs> but it's not just his height that makes him um, huge or impressive. Um, it's what he represents. His name, Goliath from Gath, uh, in Hebrew, his name means exile. This isn't just some big guy on a battlefield for them. This isn't just some friendly neighborhood scrimmage for them. Goliath represents alienation and destruction and decreation. In Goliath, the whole story, their whole story, their identity, their purpose, their vocation, all of it, if he gets his way, all of it unravels before them. Goliath represents the unmaking of God's promise to them and to all of creation through them. And so naturally, Saul and his army are pretty scared. The text says that they are dismayed. Uh, it's this Hebrew word, yehatu. Uh, repeat after me, yehatu. Uh, it's a word that means dismayed or terrified or shattered. They are literally shattered in their souls. Goliath isn't just scary because he's a giant. He's scary because he threatens to shatter them. He's unwriting their story. He's unmaking God's promises to them. He's undoing God's plan to restore creation. Goliath is the place in our lives where everything shatters into a million pieces. Goliath is the insurmountable circumstance or situation that just feels bigger than life. Goliath is the thing that is so big that you can't see around it. 
Goliath is the insurmountable, relentless bully on the playground or on the team or at work or, or even at home. Goliath is the insurmountable, relentless system like chattel slavery or apartheid. Goliath is the insurmountable or relentless debt that might be crushing you or your family. Goliath is the insurmountable or relentless brokenness of a marriage. Or maybe the insurmountable or relentless estrangement between a parent and their child. Goliath is the insurmountable or relentless addiction that threatens to unravel you. Goliath is the insurmountable or relentless sin pattern that wants to unwrite your story if the evil one gets his way. And ultimately, Goliath is the evil one who comes to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus says. Not just humanity, but creation and everything therein. And Goliath is the evil one who will use every ounce of our spiritual, our emotional, our moral immaturity and brokenness to accomplish those purposes, to interrupt God's good plans for you and for me and for creation, including an unwitting, though impressively tall warrior who merely steps up to fight the nation in his people's way. So I want to walk through the rest of the story with you, but along the way, I'll stop for a couple little application nuggets that we're going to call smooth stones. You'll catch up to that a little bit in a little bit. Uh, so let's hop back in. As Saul and his army quite literally quake in their boots before Goliath and the Philistines, David shows up to the battlefield as the royal cheese bearer. Quite literally, he comes with a charcuterie board for the men. Ten cheeses, the scriptures say. Uh, 10,000 fellowship points if you can guess the cheeses. Uh, so uh, while he's visiting with his brothers, he overhears Goliath's big talk. And despite everyone around him shaking in their boots, his immediate response is, who does this guy think he is? This brings us to the first smooth stone, David's character. David is incredibly zealous, which we might dismiss as youthful enthusiasm. But as David was faithfully carrying out his duties of shepherding God, uh, sorry, of shepherding, God was at work deepening David's character, the patience to bring back each one of those sheep that wandered every single time, the courage to protect them from wild animals, the zeal to rescue the sheep rather than let them be devoured, the self-control to not just go and do something else that's more fun than watching sheep, the faithfulness to watch over them day and night and the humility to not think that he was above the small task of caring for sheep. David's character grew, his virtue grew, and with it, God was quietly equipping him to slay Goliath. Sometimes the insurmountable, relentless Goliath is poor character. How is God deepening your character and mine in the face of Goliath this season? As the story continues, word gets to Saul that there's this kid who's talking lots of big talk to the men. And so Saul eventually sends for David, and David goes to see King Saul, who's hanging out in his tent, trying to figure out what to do. And David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of this uh, Philistine. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul reminds David that he is quite literally just a boy. David is, um, according to the writer of Samuel, small. Uh, even if ruddy and handsome with beautiful eyes. Uh, he's likely um, an older teenager, according to numbers, but not quite 20 years old, which makes him too young to be drafted uh, into service. And so he's not just young, uh, but seemingly too small and insignificant to face the great Goliath. 
This guy, Saul reminds David, has been a man of war from his youth, he says. But David interjects, with all due respect, he says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when the lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I would run after it, strike it, and snatch the sheep out of its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I would grab it by its scruff and strike it and kill it with my bare hands. It's impressive. <laughs> um, so this brings us to the second smooth stone, David's competence um, or his skill, the alertness to notice things lurking in the distance, the endurance to run after lions and bears, he says, which are pretty fast animals. Um, I was reading um, a bunch of stuff in preparation for this, and one of my um, reference books said that uh, the bear was likely um, a, a derivative of a grizzly bear, so it was a little paler, it was probably brown, and, and it might have been a little bit smaller. And I'm like, it's a grizzly bear. How does that help? <laughs> it's still terrible. Uh, so the endurance to run after lions and bears really fast, uh, but also the self-control to rescue an animal from its mouth without provoking an attack, and the strength to subdue them if necessary. As David watched over his father's sheep, this tiny, small, menial task, God developed David's competence, his skill, his strength, and in doing so, trained him to slay Goliath. Sometimes the insurmountable, relentless Goliath in our, is our deficient competence. But God equips us by building our competence in the small, mundane moments of faithfulness. What strengths and skills do you have? And how does God want to deepen them for this season so that David, so that like David, you can offer them for God's good purposes in the world and in his kingdom? But it's not just David's character and competence that God cultivates. Uh, it's also his confidence in God's help, which is um, smooth stone number three, David's trust or faith in Yahweh. I have slayed lions and bears to protect the sheep, David says. But, and here's how he finishes the thought so, so eloquently, he says, and the same God who delivered me countless times from the fierce paws of lions and the fierce paws of bears will deliver me from the paws of Goliath. David's confidence in his own well-honed skills is matched and exceeded by his trust in the Yahweh who ultimately secures his victory. You hear this theme again and again in David's Psalms, like Psalm 144, one of my favorites of his, as a great example. Uh, he speaks of the Lord, his rock, who trains his hands for war and his fingers for battle. But that God is his deliverer, his shield, who ultimately gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. And he will again rescue me and deliver me, he says. David is thoroughly convinced that Yahweh has trained him to slay Goliath but also thoroughly convinced that it is Yahweh who ultimately delivers him in the face of Goliath. It's both, both David's confidence in his well-honed skills and strengths before Goliath, but also humble trust in Yahweh to deliver him yet again. David's speech is so impressive that Saul simply clutches his pearls and he says to David, well, go and the Lord be with you. And so David sets off, initially clothed in Saul's armor, which doesn't fit him. And so he goes to meet Saul, wearing nothing but his shepherd's frock. And Goliath sees David approaching, and he's almost annoyed. He's annoyed. He disdained him, the text says, because David is hardly a worthy opponent for the great Goliath. In Goliath's mind, David is simply not fodder for the stories that he's going to tell about his conquest back at the Bruhapa, back home. He's not going to impress anyone by beating David. 
Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, he shouts to David. But David, confident not only in himself but in his God, shouts back. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head, he says. And then David sets off running toward Goliath, grabbing a stone from his pouch and slinging it. And he manages to pick up enough momentum that by the time he closes in on Goliath, the stone quite literally sinks into Goliath's head. He falls face forward on the ground, and then David delivers on his promise. He runs over, he takes Goliath's sword, and he decapitates him with it. Now, remember the deal. If our guy beats your guy, then if our guy beats your guy, then you will serve us. But if your guy beats our guy, then we will serve you. Except the Philistines sort of forget when their guy gets failed, they literally start to run in the other direction. And so David and Israel's army has to pursue the Philistines as far as Goliath's hometown of Gath, uh, which brings us to smooth stone number four, your army. We tend to think of the story of David and Goliath, and we forget that David um, wasn't just a lone man on a battlefield facing off with a giant, but that David had an entire army behind him. Sometimes the insurmountable, relentless Goliath is being alone and isolated and exiled. But remember, God's people were fighting to prevent being scattered, to prevent being set apart from all their people, to prevent being sent into exile. David may have been the only person with the strength of, of character and competence and faith to face off with Goliath, but he didn't do it by himself. King Saul and his entire army were behind him. Who's behind you as you face off with Goliath? Who's your army? Who's cheering you on this season? And who, like King Saul and the army, who is your, your army that will not just cheer you on, but link arms with you in pursuit of Goliath? After turning from pursuing the Philistines, David takes the head of Goliath with him to Jerusalem. And Abner, King Saul's servant, brings David before Saul. And the two of them play Dutch bingo as David stands in Saul's presence with the head of Goliath in his hand. Now, is this just a gory detail that the text includes to cement David in your imagination as, it, as an epic warrior? Yes, but it's at least that. There's more to it than that. There's a really, really smart guy by the name of Brian Verrett. Uh, Brian Verrett um, is an Old Testament scholar, and he thinks that 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel uh, is chocked full of messianic imagery. Um, if we can go up a slide, there it is. Um, and that Goliath is actually presented as a serpent of sorts. Now, I removed a whole section from the sermon about how that comes to be. The only thing I'll focus on is Goliath's head. If we could go back two slides. Um, Goliath's head. Uh, why all the focus on Goliath's head? Why the focus on David taking off his head, threatening to take off his head, taking off his head, taking his head into his tent, bringing the head with him to go talk to Saul? Why all the emphasis on the head? Uh, where else have you noticed... Um, talk about a serpent and a head before. Where else in the scriptures? Genesis 3, yeah. Uh, in Genesis 3, when the God says to the serpent, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring, uh, and, and her offspring will bruise or strike your head. Uh, so all of this emphasis on the head is pointing to something. It is pointing to this larger cosmic battle that the writer of First and Second Samuel wants you to be tuned into. Uh, this is one of many cosmic battles, uh, which brings us to 
uh, smooth stone number five. There is a Goliath, a capital G Goliath, that truly is bigger than us, a cosmic Goliath. The Goliath David faced um, off with is dead, um, but the threat of exile um, dissipates for now, but eventually it returns. And eventually another Messiah, a greater Messiah, one who is stronger and more fierce and more lethal than David will need to come and face off with the cosmic Goliath. Just like David, you and I sit before Goliath in our own time. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, nine million American children live in poverty. According to the Emory School of Medicine, 5.3 million incidents of intimate partner violence occur each year in this country. The stats on mass violence or mass killings are just as astounding, 570 since 2006, to name just a couple of things. And then there's this, uh, and Reverend Skipper said this last week, just 39% of Americans say they felt very connected to others, according to Gallup in 2022. According to a study by Cigna in 2018, they surveyed 20,000 people, uh, 54% of them, uh, this was before COVID, said that they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. 25% of Americans have lost a friend, that's one in four due to political polarization. 47% of U.S. adults belong to a church, mosque, or synagogue. It's under 50% for the first time in U.S. history. Here in Ottawa County, 44.2% of residents adhere to a religious tradition or belong to a faith community. And according to a series of um, articles in the New York Times, when asked why they don't belong to a church, people cited everything from judgmental Christians, overemphasis on politics, bigotry toward minoritized groups, and hypocrisy. People are lonelier than ever, and yet, not just hesitant, but resistant to Christ and even more so to his church. An incredibly violent, polarized, isolated, lonely, and hostile mission field is the one that we sit before. This is the Goliath of our time. And we can either run from Goliath, we can, we can put our head in the sand, we can hide in the tent, we can pretend like it's not happening, or we can rise to the occasion. And as it turns out, fellowship has always been the kind of community that rises to the occasion. Years ago, we began a journey called Natural Church Development to help us listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as we discerned the next faithful steps in our mission together. Because we wanted to not only discern the missional moment, but also learn what it would look like to equip local missionaries, that's all of us, for the task. It began with an assessment, but expanded to include goals and strategies and teams and some really incredible feats of mission. Fellowship has in every season discerned what it means to meet Goliath in our own time. From getting hand-to-hand -hand in every West Ottawa school to training over 100 people to walk alongside people in the lowest, hardest moments of their lives through Stephen's ministry, to sending a dozen people from fellowship, some of you in this room, to relaunch Fourth Reformed to help people engage the scriptures through Bethel Bible, taught by Carl and uh, Jean Reinink, uh, Reverend James H. Most Holy Bar IV, uh, his dad, and also Nancy Pell, to helping people learn how to share their faith with other people. And while we celebrate past victories, we refuse to rest on past victories like the Philistines did. Instead, like David, we remain hungry and thirsty and zealous for God's mission in the world faithful to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our own time, eager to discern the next faithful steps in our mission together as faithful followers of Jesus. And just like before, it starts with an assessment in which each of us is honest about our life and our faith, 
that ultimately it's about us learning not only our strengths, but also the places where we're weakest so that God can equip us to join his rescue mission in the world. Why? Because as it turns out, our mission field is desperate for people who are real enough and unifying enough and inviting enough and equipping enough to help others have an encounter with God that changes their lives. Goliath is not just a mortal enemy, he's a cosmic enemy. And our Christ conquered Goliath. Sin and death, sin and death has been conquered so that you and I could be united to him and reconciled to the Father and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Christ is the ultimate slayer of Goliath. Christ tramples Goliath under our feet, Paul says. And it is in the name of this Christ, emboldened by his Spirit and humbled by the sheer privilege of being able to serve him, that you and I get to surrender everything that we are and everything that we have and everything that God has cultivated within us and gift it to us for the sake of his glorious rescue mission for humanity and creation. And like David, may we step into God's mission, not with fear, but with confidence in our equipping and faith in our God and fellowship with our, our army and trust in Christ's victory for, in, and through us. It is in Christ that we place our hope as we await the final victory. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for you. Because when we, when we even when we turned away from you, even when we um, ran after, ran after um, the enemy camp, we, you did not leave us in the mouths of Goliath, but you came and you snatched us out. And you set us on the path back to communion with you and with one another. Thank you for identity in you. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for loving us. And Lord, thank you for sending us so that we could be a part of your rescue mission for others in our world and in our communities and in our neighborhoods and even in our homes. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, I invite you to stand and we're going to sing together God of grace and God of glory. As we seek to be a people that are equipped in this world, it is God who gives us that equipping. So we pray, grant us wisdom, grant us courage. Let's sing together.
friends, when you know who you are, you know what to do. At Fellowship Church, this is us. We are real, unifying, inviting, and equipping. It's who God has called us to be and to increasingly become. So as you go from this place to be more equipping, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.